Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Most of us like, how many of you like new things? Do you like new things? Um, my wife likes new things. Uh, she really does. It doesn't have to be big expensive things. For instance, my wife likes likes the new food. So if there's like new bread and old bread, guess what Kathy does? She opens the new bread. I eat the old bread. If there's milk, you know, there's old milk and new milk, guess what Kathy does? Kathy opens the new milk, which works out. We, we, we complement each other really well this way because I'll drink milk three, four days after the expiration date. So, you know, probably shouldn't do that, but I do. We just complement each other that way, you know. So most of us like new things. We like to do new things. Uh, one of the things that I do like that's new, I like new words. And annually, words come out that get added to our English dictionary. Language is always changing. Um, and so, new words are fun to me. And one of the things I like to do when I encounter a new word, because they'll come out with lists, like, you know, right around January 1st, end of year, something like that. New, new word lists. And I like to try to guess what the definition is before I read the definition. I want to give you a couple that uh, I, I have, have seen. Um, one of them is, uh, this is kind of a fun one. See if you can know what the definition is. Phonesia. Phonesia. Now, because I, I actually uh, lost my phone this morning, um, when I first r- read that word, I thought it meant, you know, putting your cell phone down and losing it somewhere. Um, I did something really dumb. I called it thinking I would, I would hear it. I didn't hear it because it was on silent. But I did find it later this morning, and my wife is saying, good, because I literally just lost one a month ago or so. Um, I called it, and then later on in the morning, a couple hours later, I, knew, I looked at my phone, and it, it had the, the church number on it. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me who from the church was calling me. It was, it was me. <laughs> I guess that could be a form of phonesia, but that's not really the actual definition. Let me give you the the actual definition of phonesia. Phonesia is the act of dialing a phone number and forgetting who you were calling just as they answer. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Praise God for that one. So the next time it happens, you can just say, um, yeah, hello, uh, who is this? And when they say, what do you mean, who is this? You called me. You can just say, oh yeah, Phoenicia, just help me out here. You know, you can do that one. Um, words, sometimes uh, old words get put together to form new words. And a word that has kind of come into its own in corporate America in, in recent years is a word called blame storming. Blame storming. Now here's what blame storming is. Blame storming is when a group of people from an organization have been assigned the task of solving a problem. But instead of problem solving, they get together and they start trying to assign blame. So instead of brainstorming, it's blame storming. All kinds of interesting words out there that are, you know, kind of new. Sometimes new words kind of capture our attention. We think, ooh, cool, something new. And the other end of the spectrum are kind of old topics, old words that sometimes, because of our familiarity with their definitions, their ideas around them, we we kind of lose their value, lose their power. Back in the early 90s, uh, the Kellogg's 
uh, people, the serial people, had done some marketing research and they, they discovered that there were a lot of people who had eaten one of their products uh, when they were kids, but as adults had not ever bought a box and brought it home. Okay? Here, so watch this commercial. See if you remember this. It's coming up about now. And it has sound. We think. Does it not have sound? Brandon? I think Brandon fell asleep. I don't know that. This could put some giddy up my get along with. What do you call it? Kellogg's cornflakes. Kellogg's cornflakes? <laughs> you got me, didn't you? I did. Taste them again for the first time. How many of you remember that series of commercials, Taste Them Again for the first time that came out, late 80s, early 90s? It was, th th basically, they, they found out that uh, people had quit eating their cereals. At some point, they, it had lost its value, so they went after that, that market uh, segment and really did really well with it. And uh, so that, they, that was kind of their rally cry, Taste Them Again for the very first time. Well, one of the things that happens... Uh, especially in Christian culture, is we can become so familiar with deep, rich, theological, biblical truths that they at times begin to lose their power and beauty and wonder in our lives. And so from time to time, I, I need to, I, I think we need to, we need to kind of do the Kellogg's thing. We need to taste those things again for the first time maybe. And one of those that I want us to take uh, several weeks, maybe the month of June to look at, is this idea, this beautiful idea, the beautiful word of grace. I want us to just camp out a few weeks on God's grace. And as I've been thinking about this and as we talked about and God displayed his grace last week so, so prominently and is continuing to do that uh, in lives around here, I, I, I hope we all kind of taste it again for the first time that there's a renewal of grace in our lives. And so I've begun praying for something. Uh, I, I've just begun praying for this and I, I hope you'll join me and it's straight out of a passage of scripture I shared last week. It's from Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 and it, it simply says this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's just, it's become my prayer. I, the, the thought of somebody connecting to this church you know, maybe showing up, maybe hanging out, maybe plugging into some groups or something like that, but not connecting to the grace of God. You know, to just let the grace of God sit on the shelf of your mind or heart and not really be connected, to miss its power for the here and now would be a great tragedy. To me, I can't think of a greater tragedy than for someone to connect to this community and yet miss the grace of God. And I want to say, I'm, I'm good with you missing lots of things around here. But not that. Not, not missing the grace of God. Because when, when grace gets missed, when, when it's absent or when, when grace gets replaced with some type of cheap imitation, bad things happen. That passage from Hebrews concludes by telling us that when, when grace is not present, bitterness happens. 
Things get toxic. Trouble comes up. Lives, human life that God values get defiled. The destroyer comes and he just has, wreaks havoc in people's lives. And so what I want us to do for the next couple of weeks is just kind of taste this grace again. Maybe kind of for the very first time. Now, I, I need to just say something out, get it out here uh, on grace. I can't think about grace in its fullness without dealing with the issue of sin. Some people try to do that. You know, some people try to, to, to talk about embracing grace. I don't think you can fully embrace, embrace grace without dealing with the issue of sin in the context of thinking about grace. I know, you know, a lot of churches want to talk about Jesus as Savior, but don't want to talk about sin. And I don't know how you can think of Jesus as Savior without thinking about the sin he's saving you from. You, you, you gotta, we gotta think about this unless you talk about that as well. And so the Bible doesn't pull any punches. Now one of the things that I'm aware of when, when we gather and talk about a topic like this, there are some people that may be here for the very first time and for the first time grace really connects to their heart. And then there are some here who've been walking in grace for years, but maybe what God wants to do in, in us is maybe what he wants to do is fan that flame so grace burns so hot that we can't help but start sharing it with others. Start helping others into the grace and beauty of God. But again, we got to think about this sin issue and the Bible doesn't pull any punches and there's a verse that many of us know. It's Romans 3.23. It says this, for everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. And it says we fall short of God's glorious standard. Everyone. Now who's in that? You are. I am. Every human being on the planet. Everyone, the Bible says, has sinned. And, you know, when we think of a verse like that, and we, you know, if we will finally kind of include ourselves in that, yeah, I've sinned, but I haven't, like, really sinned. You know, that's kind of how it goes, you know. Yeah, Joe, you, you got me. I'm a sinner, but I'm not a real sinner. You know, like, Joe, have you seen, you know, like, some of the celebrities on TV, you know. Have, have you seen some of that kind of stuff? We, we kind of let our sin try to get us off the hook. And we do that by comparing ourselves to other people. You know, we'll, we'll start comparing ourselves, you know, with others trying to, 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 to get ourselves off. But, but you know what happens when we're comparing ourselves to other people? You know what that's called? Sin. It's called sin. It's called pride. Which is, in God's sight, the Bible says that's an uglier sin than most of the sins we're comparing ourselves to. I mean, in, in Proverbs chapter 16, it says pride will destroy you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote these words. He said, God opposes the proud. God will get in your face if you're living in pride. And so, the, the, the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glorious standard. And the Bible discusses this in detail. And the way that the Bible kind of speaks of sin is as if it is a, like a disease. And we're all carriers. All of us have the, the disease, the sickness. We all, we all have it in our lives. Do any of you um, struggle with the condition of denying when you're sick? Like, you know, you're coughing your head off and your spouse will say, why don't you take some, why don't you take some cough medicine? He said, why would I take cough medicine? 
because you kept me up all night, you know. But you won't take the cough medicine because if you take the cough medicine, then what are you doing? Admitting that you're sick. You're giving in to the sickness. You know, and we don't want to do that because we want to keep our schedules. We want to do the things we want to do. And so we just don't, we, we don't cave in to sickness. Now, here's the truth about that. That is not an effective way to get well. It's just not. It's just not a real effective way to get, to get, to get healed. And here's the truth about grace and its power. Until you really truly recognize why you need it, until you really understand the depth of your depravity, that you are part of everyone, that you are a sinner, until that comes, you will, you will not experience grace. You'll just never be captured by grace until you understand your own sickness. Everyone, the Bible says, that's the diagnosis. Everyone suffers with this disease. Everybody's got it. But then Romans, Romans 6 gives us the prognosis for this disease. You got the diagnosis in Romans 3. The prognosis in Romans 6 is this. You're dead. You're going to die. This disease is going to, to take you out. Now, when the scriptures talk about death, primarily it's talking about separation from God. And so what it's saying when it says that is, if you've got this disease called sin, it's going to keep you separated from God. We need to understand that. We need to get what that means for us eternally. That we're, we would be eternally separated from God. But that's not the end of the story. That's, that's, the, that's the, the diagnosis and the prognosis. But that's not the end of the story. Because not only does the Bible discuss the disease and sin and the ultimate outcome. But it also tells us about... It tells us about something greater than that. Even though Romans, and I spent the month of May really kind of reading and rereading reflectively Romans 5, 6, 7, 8. And I just got captured by Romans 5 in a way I'd never done before. Just really captured my heart. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it explains this disease issue. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. When Adam sinned, that's when sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to who? Everyone. For everyone's sin. It all started with Adam's sin. And everyone was then infected. Everybody got an infection. We've all been diagnosed. We all have the same prognosis. Eternal separation from God. That's, that's the deal. But then Romans 5 introduces us to the antidote. It introduces us to grace. And verse 15 says this. There is a great difference between Adam's sin and and God's grace. There's this huge difference. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Yes, there's sin. But there's something greater than sin. There's something that overcomes sin. And Paul tells us here that even though sin is so powerful that it leads to death... There's something more powerful out there. It's the wonderful grace of God. Recently, our country got sucked into the vortex of the royal wedding. Did any, did, were, have we got any royal wedding followers in here? We had, we had like 20 in the first service that, just, that would admit it, you know, that would confess that they were just caught up with. I just, just need to say something. You know they have no real power. 
They're, they're really not that kingly and queenly, you know. They, they, now, there was a day. There was a day when the monarchs in Great Britain ruled. They, they had complete authority. You know, they, in that day, they, had, they even had authority over life and death. They, they were often the jury and the judge and the executioner. They, they, had, they had that kind of authority. That, just, just that truth. And, but, but Paul tells us that something really cool about God's grace over sin and over death. Look at this. In, in this these are the last two verses from Romans chapter 5. I love the way it ends. It says, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. Grace is going to reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, I, I just spent the month of May meditating, praying through this, and I've just been captured by this idea that His grace reigns. His grace reigns over everything. It has dominion over my sin and has dominion over death. It, it, it's going to triumph. And see, here's the deal. When you think about that and you think about sin, usually what happens with most of us is there's, there's a certain sin. There's a personal sin that kind of comes into our thoughts. Some stupidity that you and I have engaged in. You know, whatever it is that you regret the most. Whatever, whatever season of your life you wish you could wipe out. Grace will reign over that. Grace, grace will have its, grace will have triumphed over whatever the worst thought you can have about yourself. Because grace makes all the difference. Grace will give freedom. Grace will bring hope. Grace will reign over this. God's grace will triumph over it. And I want you to look at the results here of grace. In, in, again in chapter 5 verses 16 and 17. It says, and the results, the results, the final outcome of God's grace is very different from the results of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to what? To condemnation, being condemned. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God even though we were guilty of many sins. What he's saying is, Adam sinned once and it wrecked many. You and I sin a ton, but God's grace is good for that. God's grace can handle even that. God's grace will triumph over even that. It says even when we're guilty of many, his grace will reign. Verse 17 says this, it says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to reign over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will what? Live in triumph. I love that line. We'll live in triumph. That's, what, that's how we can live over sin and over death. Adam's one sin brings condemnation. Christ's one act of forgiveness brings righteousness. Now, what, is that, what does that do for us? What, it, it, it comes to us, it brings a relationship with God to everyone who will receive it. Everyone who will come to God through Christ. And I pray you don't miss that. I, I pray we don't miss God's wonderful grace here. And what that means is it will give you second chances. And it can be true for everyone. Even that list of everyone who has sinned, God's grace is available to everyone. And we're made right through Jesus. Now, but here's the deal. Sometime, sometimes in this life, especially in Christian culture, it's easy for us to miss grace. And here's why. Because there's a great enemy of grace in the church. There's a great enemy of grace in the world. Now, I know some people think, well, it's Satan. 
I don't even think Satan is the greatest enemy of grace in the world. I think religion is. I think religion is the greatest enemy of grace. I don't know that I am afraid of many things more than I am of religious people. Religious people scare me. I don't know if you know what religion is. Religion is trying to talk about God without grace. That's a, the simplest form of definition for what religion is that I can think of. It's trying to think about God, think about being made right with God, thinking about being in relationship with God without grace. That's what, that's what religion is. That's why religion scares me. You know what religion did to Jesus? It made him mad. It, he was sick. Jesus, some of you are saying, I came to church and they said this. Jesus does not like religious people. Sorry. Now he may love them, but Jesus got in the face of religious people. You don't believe me? Read Matthew 23 today. Got all up in their grill over their religion. And so I want us to think today of a couple of things. One of them is I want you to get captured by this reality though. All of us struggle with religion at some time. But God's grace, God's grace will reign over our religion. All of us have some concoction of if I do this, I'll get right with God. That's religion. And it kills. And God's grace wants to reign over that in your life and in my life. And I want us to help us kind of identify when religion starts cropping up so that we can see the difference between, you know, religion and we can see, see what grace really looks like. So I want to, I've kind of given you a comparative chart there that maybe you can fill in the blanks on real quickly. We're going to move through this pretty quick. First with religion, the key word in religion is do. Do. Go do more. If you do enough, you can be right with God. Maybe you need to work harder at it. If you do that, maybe you'll finally make the cut and be on God's team. Do. The key word for grace is what? Done. It's done. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished, done. That's the key word to grace. It's done. There's nothing else that I can do. It's done. I just receive it. Here's the next word I want you to think about is the focus of, gray, uh, of religion. The focus of, of religion is always outward. It's always uh, kind of on the outward. D Jesus consistently criticized the religious leaders of his day for being so outwardly focused. He, he said this in Matthew 15. He says, these religious people, what they do is they honor me with their lips. They speak. They just try to honor me this way, but their hearts are far from me. What's going on on the inside? Outwardly, they try to say all the right things. Later on, Jesus also says in Matthew 23, he, he says, you know, you, you dress right. You wear it well on the outside. You look really good on the outside. You got all the outward stuff going on. But on the inside, you are like a tomb holding dead men's bones. You're, you're, you're tombed up. It's like death is, is just in you. Now the focus of grace is on the inward man. The focus of grace is on transformation of the heart. The focus of grace is trying to be changed, not outside, but inside. That will eventually impact the outside. That's, that's the focus of grace, is, is this, this kind of inward drive. Third thing that I want you to think about is the foundation. The foundation of religion is rules. Foundation of religion is rules, following rules. Typically what happens with somebody who is trying to, in, in, in Christianity, if they're trying to make Christianity a religion, they'll take the rules, the guidelines for living that are in this book, and they'll try to make more rules. 
to, so that you will understand the rules that are already there. We call that legalism. Okay, when you're adding rules to rules, that's legalism. You're trying to get the rules to rule. It'll kill you. But that's, that's the foundation of, of this thing called religion. Foundation of grace is relationship. It's relationship. It's, it's being made right with God through a relationship with his son. And see, when that happens, you're not, you're not up in the air with God. You're not thinking, oh, am I in or am I out? You know, it's because you have a relationship with his son that you always know you're, you're his child. And that affects our motivation. The motivation for religion is shame. It really is. It's shame. And, and, and people try to control with this. People try to make you feel bad. They're trying to control you with, with this idea of shame. And many of us grew up in shame-based environments. Maybe your home was shame-based. Some of you have come out of churches that, that are, are shame-based. We, we've experienced that. People try to shame you into right behavior. Now, I need to speak into this. There's a difference between shame and conviction. Conviction, when it comes, will also make you feel bad. But here's the difference between shame and conviction. Conviction always brings the gospel. Always. Conviction always brings the good news. Conviction always leads to you saying, I don't, I don't have to live with this. I can let this go. I can repent. I can turn this over to God. God, this is yours, man. Conviction always brings the gospel with it. Trying to control somebody's behavior without the gospel is religion. It, it, it's just religion. The motivation for, for grace is gratitude. It's just beautiful gratitude. It's realizing it's been done for me. Oh my goodness. Oh wow. I am just so grateful. It's that gratitude that what Jesus did on the cross, it, it just overwhelms me. And that leads to a, a way of experiencing feeling and emotions in your life. The, the feelings of religion are fear and frustration. Fear and frustration are the feelings of religion. Uh, it's, it's either fear of condemnation. Some of you, again, grew up just knowing that. So some of you grew up with this constant thought of thinking, man, if Jesus came back right now while I'm in this sin, I'm toast. You know, if, if he just showed up right now, I'm, I'm toast, you know. That, that's, that's a thought. That's a fear of condemnation. And so, you know, your only hope was that you could, could do better. You know, you could do better. Or, or you live with this constant fear that I'm not good enough. You try and you try and you try and then you finally just give up. You live in this constant frustration because you're, you don't feel like you measure up. But here's what grace does. The feeling that grace gives you is freedom. You, you just, you feel free. You feel, you're, you're free from that pressure of trying to, trying to keep up. You're free from that pressure because you realize it's already been taken care of. I just have to live in the beauty of this. Which leads to different outcomes in life really. The outcome of religion is pride and guilt. That, that's what it leads to. Ultimately, it leads to pride and or guilt. What you're going to experience is, you know, one of those things. Either you're going to sit around proud and self-righteous because you think, check, I've kept that rule. Check, yeah, I've got that. Yeah, I'm looking pretty good. Looking pretty shot. Yeah, I'm pretty good. You know, you, you, you start falling into pride or because you're not able to check the boxes, you start to feel guilty. You start to feel shamed. You start to feel like you're broken. Like you're messed up. The outcome of grace, however, is love. It's just love. You just, it's, your, it's your kind of default response because you realize 
I can love God because he, he loved me first. Because he went first. I just, all I have to do is respond back in, in his love. See, when, when our focus is on grace, when, when we get that, that's, love just kind of flows out of our lives. It becomes the, the bottom line. And here's the deal. When we will allow it, tr grace will always trump religion. Always if we'll live in God's grace. And not try to, try to live by rule. See, grace is what we need. We, we, we're desperate for it. Now to understand kind of the significance of this antidote called grace, we've got to do more than just know that we need it. If we really want to live in it, we can't just live with explanations of it. And this quite frankly kind of, when I thought about this a little bit this week, kind of made me mad because, you know, I, I kind of do a lot of explaining every week. Um, but here's the deal. I, I can't explain grace to you. Not in its fullness. I, I can't explain grace good enough for you to get it. You're going to have to experience it. In his great book uh, that Philip Yancey wrote, What's So Amazing About Grace, one of the things he said is, you know, some people approach grace like dissecting a frog. And in the end, what happens is you kill it. If all you do with grace is go to, you know, theological dictionaries, if all you do with grace is just try to, you know, learn it in your head, you're going to kill it. It'll be like dissecting a frog. You might know something about the frog, but the frog's dead in the end. Grace, that will happen to grace in your life. You, you can't just explain it. You need an explanation of it. That's why Paul, in Paul's epistles, over a hundred times, Paul mentions grace. He speaks of grace. Because it needs to be explained. But more than it needs to be explained, it needs to be experienced. Do you know how many times Jesus used the word grace? Does that seem freaky to anybody other than me? Jesus never used the word grace. The word grace is only in the Gospels like three times. All four of the Gospels. Why do you think that is? Because the Gospels are nothing but story after story after story of grace. It displays grace so that you can step into a story to experience it. Paul explains it. We need Paul. We need the explanation. But folks, you need the experience of the story. You need to be able to step into the story of grace. One of the greatest stories of grace that Jesus put on display that I'm aware of is in John chapter 8. Some of you know that you may want to go read it. I'm not going to read it right now, but we're just going to talk about it for a minute. Jesus, the Bible tells us in John chapter 8, is up early one morning and he's teaching. We don't know why it's early in the morning. We don't know why people showed up early in the morning. But Jesus is teaching early in the morning is the way John describes it. And noise, I'm imagining some of this, noise starts happening behind him. A gate bursts open and a bunch of men come kind of rushing in. And in front of them they are shoving a woman. Probably not dressed, probably only dressed in a bed sheet. Just shoving her. And when they get near Jesus, they shove her down into the dirt. And one of them steps forward. And you can read about this in John chapter 8 verses 4 and 5. One of them steps forward and, and he says to Jesus, We have caught this woman in the very act of adultery and the law says that she should be stoned to death. 
She, she should, th this is what should happen right now. She should be, she should be put to death. Jesus, what do you say? What, what, what do you say to this? Some of you know the story. You know that what Jesus did was, he didn't answer. Jesus knew it was a trap. So what Jesus does is he kneels down and he draws in the dirt. You know, doodles in the dirt or something. Now there have been, I don't know what he wrote. Nobody knows what he wrote because the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, you know, there are people who will tell you that they're pretty sure that he wrote the sins of, you know, the people standing there because of what happened next they left. We don't know what happened. Um, it's a great question. It's, one, it's on my top ten list to ask Jesus when I get there. Jesus, what'd you write? You know? Um, so, great, great thought there. But then Jesus, the Bible tells us Jesus stands up and Jesus is respond, he's responds to the man. And he said, uh, here's what I say. Any of you that have no sin, throw your rock. And the Bible tells us that they all drop their rocks and they leave, starting with the oldest to the youngest, until it's just Jesus and this woman standing there. Just, just the, the two of them. Maybe she's not even standing. She's probably still down kind of in the dirt. And Jesus asked her a question now. Where, where are your accusers? Does nobody... Nobody accuse you? And he, I think, probably lifts her up or kneels down with her and says, neither do I accuse you. Go, leave your life of sin and live life now. And I believe she saw in his eyes that this was a place where there was no judgment, there was no, no condemnation. And now before you think... You know, yeah, Jesus just kind of let her off the hook. No. Jesus knew this woman. He knew her. The Bible tells us in, in Psalm 139 that Jesus knew this woman when she was being knit together in her mother's womb. Luke tells us that Jesus knew this woman so well that he knew the numbers of hairs on her head. Uh, Psalms 56 tells us that Jesus knew this woman so well that every tear she had ever cried he had in a bottle stored in heaven. He knew this woman. He knew this woman better than those men did. He knew this woman better than she knew herself. Jesus knew her. He knew her heart. He knew her brokenness. He knew her sin. He knew that, uh, that, that earlier that morning that door had been kicked down and she had been literally drug out of bed and into the street. Jesus knew. But Jesus saw this, this person that he loved. He, he knew that she was a daughter of God. And his question is, does anybody condemn you? Anybody left to do that? Well, I, I'm not going to do that either. We're not going to live this way in this relationship. See, that day had started out and I imagine she began to think, this is the worst day of my life. The secret that I have lived with, that I prayed would never get out, my secret is now out for everybody to see. And Jesus taught her a great lesson that day about grace and its reign. And it's this. Grace will reign over your deepest, darkest secret. If you will step into God's grace, God's grace will reign and it will heal your deepest, darkest secrets. Your grace, His grace, 
will triumph over your secret. What started out as her worst day became the best day of her life because she met the grace of God in the face of Jesus. The worst day of her life became the best day of her life because of a moment of grace in the eyes and face of Jesus Christ. Her secret had been put on display. Jesus saw it. Jesus knew all of her secrets. And he received her. My friends, if you've been around anybody in the recovery movement, you've heard this before. Your secrets are what make you sick. Your secrets are what are destroying your soul. Your secrets are killing you. But God's grace can triumph and reign over your secret. Now here's the deal. You may have to bring your secret out into the light kicking and screaming. There will be some pain attached to this. You're not going to have to come up on stage and do it. But you need to let some people know. You need to let a, invite a few people in. Because if you don't, your secret's going to destroy you. Because the only way it comes out into the light of grace is in relationships. It's, it's, it's with some other people. First with God, but then in a community of believers. But you've got to know this. God's grace is more powerful than your secrets. And he wants to heal you. So by God's grace and for your own sake, don't live in your secrets. Just don't do it anymore. Bring it out into the light of God's grace. Back in 2005, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Frank Warren. And Frank Warren um, considered himself kind of a, a poet, an artist, uh, armchair anthropologist. And what he did was he, he got uh, 3,000, his first run, he got 3,000 prepaid postcards that were pre-addressed and put some instructions on it. It simply said this, tell your secret anonymously and we will um, put it up as an art project for our city. Well, he got almost all 3,000 of those cards back. People sharing their secrets anonymously. Um, it eventually led to a book and then a second book and a third book and now a website. And every Sunday, people share their secrets. They anonymously share their secrets. I want to read some of the secrets to you. Some of the early ones. This one, uh, a woman says, she says, this is my secret. I think women who don't wear, wear makeup are lazy. I'm thinking, really? That's your big, deep, dark secret? Honey, goodness. Um, another one. Men, this, this is for you and me. One wife said, when I'm mad at my husband, I put boogers in his soup. <laughs> if you get served soup today, just watch out, baby. Um, some of them were random. This was a random one. I thought it said, it said this, I'm afraid of women who wear capri pants. <laughs> okay. Um, one started getting a little disturbing. One said, um, here's my secret. Every time I get my toenails done, I want to kick that girl that's doing them in the face. Why, why do you keep going back and getting your toenails done? Um, somebody's secret was, I hate people who include me in group text. One barista said this, um, I give decaf to customers who are rude to me in the morning. Um, <laughs> some are heartbreaking. This one said, I wish my father had forgiven me while he was still alive. Another one said, I wish that I was blind so that I wouldn't have to look at the mirror and see myself every day. Another one said, my husband doesn't know he's raising his best friend's child. 
Another one said, when I eat, I feel like a failure. Another one said, I'm only happy when I buy things. And the last entry in the book was, was, was really interesting. And the last entry in the first book says this. It said, when I finally told all my secrets, I started to feel free. See, you start to feel free when your secrets are pulled out into the light. Now, I want to say this. You're not going to experience complete freedom until the grace of God washes over them. Until, you're, until, until you're, they're fully out into the light. But God's grace is powerful enough. It will reign over your secrets. Another thing that Jesus taught that dear lady that day is that grace will also reign over your shame. It will reign over your shame. She was humiliated publicly and broken. And Jesus says to her, you know what? With me, there's a no condemnation zone. Just life in me is, is a no condemnation zone. He gives her a second chance. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a fresh do-over for her. Her life is no longer just free from the penalty of death, but from the power that it had hold, hold over her. And she has a new freedom. Folks, it just my observation, the biggest problem that Christians that I interact with have today is we know cognitively that we are forgiven. Some don't do that. But many know that they're forgiven, but we don't live in grace. We don't live in the power of God's grace. We don't, we don't live in it. We don't experience the peace of God through grace. We still live shame-based. We let shame control us. But if the grace of God is flowing over you in its fullness, grace will reign over your shame. And I hate to say this, but sometimes church is the worst place for it. For shame to just reign over people because of the way we, we hold it over. See, when Jesus said, of your sin, I put it as far as the east from the west. We spend too much time reminding each other of our sin. There's an accuser who does that. We don't need to do it for one another. We need to help each other out. Jesus said, I put your sin in the deepest part of the ocean. That's what God's grace does. It helps us overcome our, our sin, our shame that's accompanied by it. The Bible says that God's grace will ultimately set us free, not just from sin, but from the guilt, from the shame of sin. And so part of my prayer as we encounter God's grace is that each one of us would begin to, to see it defining our world differently. Would just see it defining our world differently. One of my, still, it still lingers with me. I don't, I don't think I live in shame over it, but it still brings pain when I think deeply about it. One of my worst ministry mistakes was made at um, Deer Park Baptist Church. I was a youth pastor there. And uh, I, I think it was like in the first or second year uh, that I was a youth pastor. And one of the things every youth pastor does is, you know, we, we feel compelled to help our young people that God's given us um, shepherding care over to, to think about living in, in pure relationships, to, to see abstinence as the pathway until you're married. 
And I had been at a conference and seen this guy. They were, they were sharing some ways to communicate that. And one of the ways that got shared to communicate that was to, you know, when you, when you group meets, don't start doing the Bible study or anything, but just take a rose and say, here's what I want to do. I'm going to pass this rose around. I don't want everybody to touch it. And you can do anything you want to to the rose. Well, you got a 13-year-old boy in the room. I think we had about 30 kids that evening. And, you know, they were massacring the poor little rose. So by the time the rose gets back to me, there's no... There's no petals on it. It's broken, you know. I end up like three pieces of a rose. And um, so it comes back to me. And so the, the point of the lesson of the rose was to be able to say, nobody wants a rose like this. You want somebody to give you a rose like that? Nobody wants a rose like that. Here's the problem where that breaks down. Jesus does. Jesus wants that rose. That's the rose that Jesus wants. No matter how broken or defiled that rose was, that's the rose that Jesus wants. Now, I tried to go back to those kids later on, you know, when I realized that, how stupid I was back then. That's the rose that Jesus wants. The broken rose. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come down to this broken planet for those kinds of roses that have been defiled. Roses that have been broken by the worst this world has to throw at us. Because that is the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we come right now in the powerful name of Jesus because we don't want to come any other way. We don't want to come in our pride or our arrogance thinking that somehow we could do something. We just come in the name of Jesus right now. God, for those of us who are confident that we have been recipients of your grace through Jesus, we come with hearts that are celebrating. And yet, God, we know that there are places in our lives where maybe shame still reigns. And you want your grace to reign over that shame. Maybe we're still living with secrets that need to be brought out into the light. And maybe you wanted us to realize today that your grace will reign beautifully over our secrets. Maybe, God, we've been trapped in religion. Maybe, maybe our faith walk with you, our relationship is, has just kind of spiraled downward into religion. And so, God, we come now. We come saying to you, we want grace. We don't want religion. We don't want shame. We don't want secrets. We want grace, God. We want you. And, God, because all of us, every one of us at one time or another, have felt like that broken devalued, violated rose. We are so grateful that you left the glory of heaven, Jesus, for us. And we come again in this moment worshiping you and celebrating you and thanking you, Jesus, that you want us. Lord, I pray not in a shaming way, not in a way to provide a space for guilt, but God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a great desire, a great remembrance that the world, most of the world, still thinks nobody wants their brokenness. And you've given us grace to take. So Father, maybe today the decision that we're making is just that we're going to take the grace out more. 
We're going to take it out of our pockets more and wear it and distribute it. Tell the story of grace. Maybe you're here today and for the very first time, the grace of God struck a place in your heart that you've not known before. Maybe you just for the very first time realized that grace is sufficient even for you and you just want to receive that through Jesus. After our service, I'm going to be down, hanging out for a while. Pastor Terry will be here. Dave will be here. Guy will be here. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be down here. If you just want to talk about how to, how to receive the grace of God that overcomes, we'll be glad to do that. Lord, we come now to worship you. We come now to celebrate the goodness of your grace, who you are in our lives. We come giving thanks. We come giving thanks as we give back to you tithes and offerings that we don't give begrudgingly. We give cheerfully because we want to see the work of grace go to the, the ends of the earth. Starting right here in our own neighborhood. So God, take, take our gifts and multiply them back. Take our hearts and receive our hearts as we worship you, God. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.